Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm fortunate to spend a little time with Tom Rosenbauer. While we chat about Orvis and the crazy times we live in, we also take a deep dive into one of Tom's lesser-known talents, chocolate making. I think you're going to really enjoy this interview. But before we get to the interview, a couple of housekeeping items. Thank you to everyone who's left us a review. We really appreciate it. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review in the podcast of your choice, subscribe, and share the podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's brought to you by our friends at Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Using a science-based approach, BTT and its partners work tirelessly to conserve and restore the flat species so many of us love to chase on the fly. Particularly in these trying times, BTT's work cannot continue without financial support from concerned anglers like you. Please visit btt.org and become a member or donate today. Memberships start at only $35 a year. Now, on to our interview. Well, Tom, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thank you, Marvin. It's great great to speak to you. It was a it was a pleasure meeting you down in Virginia this year and we had some fun and you were nice enough to give me a ride back and forth to the show. So appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my pleasure. I tend to be um Bo Beasley's designated driver for uh personalities at his show. <laughs> hey, yeah. Well, I I couldn't ask for a better driver. Well, I, I appreciate that. And you know, we have a tradition on the articulate fly. I always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Uh-huh. You know, I think I have to answer that in two parts. I I have a picture of the first fish I ever caught. It was a yellow perch caught on a worm in in the Adirondacks. I think I was like three years old. And I think I have a memory of that, but probably not. You know, as those things go, you see an old picture of yourself and you think you have a memory of it. But that's probably not a real memory. And I think the earliest memory I, I have is I took my dad took me on a fishing trip to the Thousand Islands in upstate New York. We lived in Rochester and we stayed in a motel, which was a big deal for my dad because he was being a child of the depression. He didn't spend spend money loosely. And there was a pond right in front of the motel and we sat there and caught bluegills and perch and, and probably bullhead on, on worms. And that was, that was an exciting trip. I didn't usually get to go with, on, with my dad on trips. So it was pretty cool. Yeah. Very neat. When did you move to the dark side of fly fishing? Um, when I was, 10, 11, somewhere around there, I, I had really gotten the fishing bug and I had done a lot of lure fishing and bait fishing, obviously. And, um, I, I must admit snagging carp with treble hooks and cause I couldn't catch them on dough balls. And, um, then I just saw in field and stream, or maybe I saw on the American sportsman or in a herder's catalog. I, saw stuff about fly fishing and it looked like fun. And my dad had since kind of moved on to golf. He still fished a little bit, but he never fly fished. And, um, I thought this fly fishing stuff looked kind of cool. So I tried to teach myself how to do it with books in the library. 
which wasn't very successful for the longest time. Got it. And so, you know, as you uh, grew in the sport, who are some of the folks that kind of helped you become the Tom Rosenbauer that we all know today? Oh, God, nearly everybody I've met. Probably my, you know, my biggest and most important mentor was a gentleman named Carl Coleman um, from Rochester. He had a little Orvis dealership in his garage, basically in his garage or in his, his side room of his house. And, um, he really took me under his wing and he, he taught me a lot about fishing nymphs. This was before the days of Euro nymphing and strike indicators, just fishing nymphs upstream on a floating line. He was a master at that stuff. And he taught me a lot about fly tying and he actually, um, he actually had me tie flies commercially for his shop. He liked my Catskill dry flies. Uh, which I took great pride in. Um, they weren't very good until he gave me lots of pointers. Um, but you know, I, I got good enough so that I could tie flies for a shop and that supported my fishing tackle habit. Got it. And you know, you know, not only are you a fisherman, I know you, there are other ways that you, you hunt and do other things in the outdoors. What is it about the outdoors that's captured your interest for all of these years, Tom? Oh God, I couldn't answer. I don't think I could answer that Marvin. It's just, I as a kid, I was always out in the woods and poking around in creeks and, you know, just trapping and, and just wandering through the woods. Um, I don't know. It's just something that I have to do. And, and, uh, God, it's, it's all encompassing as part of my DNA. No, uh, well said. And, you know, obviously all fly fishermen know that you've written, I think over 20 books. We see your articles regularly in magazines. Can you share with us the first piece that you ever got published? Does the Orvis news count? Sure. Absolutely. And it was probably your first paid piece too, right? (laughs) Well, I, yeah, if I didn't do it, I wouldn't get paid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. Um, the editor of the Orvis News at that time was an old gentleman named Baird Hall, who was a, a advertising executive and a writer of romance novels from the 1930s. And uh, he was a brilliant, brilliant copywriter. And he asked me to write an article for the Orvis News. And I don't even remember what it was about. I should go back and look uh, in the archives, but I, you know, it was some technique piece, obviously. And it was, I'm sure it was horrible and embarrassing. Um, but uh, little did I know they, they, he was retiring and, um, Burke Birkins who had taken it on from Baird was about to move to, uh, California to open the first Orvis non, non Manchester Vermont store in San Francisco. And so Burke was kind of had me in mind for, being the editor of the Orvis news. So they were kind of testing me to see if I could handle this stuff. Very neat. And I always ask all of my guests that, that write, you know, how you like to write, you know, some people, um, you know, get up early every morning and write for two or three hours. Some people write in spurts in the off season. Some people write when they have a problem they're trying to solve. How do you like to write Tom? Uh, I'm more of a binge writer only because I have a, I have a day job and I have a family. 
And so when when I'm writing a, a book or a magazine article, typically it's it's on Sundays, um, Sunday afternoons, and I just you know I I crank out as much as I can from noon to five or six o'clock, and then I'm done. You know, unless I'm on a real strict deadline and um, and I just have to get something done, I might write at night, but um, I'm not a, not a good early in the morning writer, more of an afternoon writer, which is funny because, uh, you know, your energy level is supposed to be the worst after lunch, but, um, I don't usually eat lunch when I'm writing. So maybe that, <laughs> that helps, but it's, you know, it's just because of, just because of other commitments that I have to block off that time. So it's kind of a binge writing. Got it. Yeah. And that's a pretty good way to spend a Sunday afternoon too. My family doesn't think so, but, uh, you know, got to do what you got to do. There you go. And, you know, obviously you've been, you know, with Orvis your entire career. Can you share with us kind of your thoughts on some of the big- biggest changes you've seen at the company and in the industry? God, everything has changed. Uh, <laughs> everything has changed. <laughs> the biggest change, the biggest change is what's happened, I think, in the past five or 10 years and that is that it's evolved from being a uh, old old white man's uh, clubby thing to a, a more broad demo, broadly demographic based uh, pastime that you know lots of different people um, can can enjoy a lot more women and a lot more young kids a lot more. You never saw young kids fly fishing or even interested in fly fishing before, you know, before, you know, 20, 30 years ago, they're just, they, they could care less about it. That was a stupid thing. Yeah, it's interesting. And I know you guys have done a lot to attract people to the sport, you know, whether it's your one-on-one classes, um, you know, I think you do a really good job of also manufacturing high quality, reasonably priced gear too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, we don't, you know, it's, it, it's not much of a business model if you're only selling to rich old guys. Um, you got a pretty limited market there. Yeah. And the stuff's great. I mean, I, um, on the recommendation of, uh, of George Daniel, I bought one of your Clearwater rods to Euro Nymph and it's a phenomenal stick and it's less than $200. That's what I use for Euro Nymphing. I use the Clearwater. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> So, so, you know, it, the industry's changed and, you know, Orvis has been around a long time. What do you think would shock most people uh, on the outside about what goes on at Orvis? I think maybe not shock, but would surprise people that um, the, the people that run the fly fishing part of it, the product developers and the marketers are mostly young um, I guess I could say hotshot anglers that are, that are, you know, that are doing all kinds of trout spay and, and Euro nymphing and, and they're, they're younger and more enthusiastic and people have the, still have the impression of Orvis as being a bunch of old stuffy guys in, in tweeds. And, um, I think that would shock people to see, uh, what the office looks like and what goes on, you know, after work and before work and on lunch hours, often people rushing out to go, to go fishing. 
um, I think that would shock people the most. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I interviewed Dan Davala recently and he was talking about he goes out on his skateboard at lunch because he doesn't eat lunch and uh, grinds on the curb yeah. in the parking lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, well, you know, obviously, you know, we're recording this in the middle of April and we've got a new normal and, uh, you know, an outgrowth of COVID-19. And we've seen, you know, everybody in the industry uh, shifting to digital engagement because it's just literally impossible to physically connect with customers and other community members, you know, can you share with us a little bit about what Orbis is doing? I mean, I see your schedule keeps getting fuller and fuller, but you know, so people can listen to this and kind of know all the opportunities that are out there for them to interact with Orbis and uh, their friends there. Well, we have a, you know, we have a great social media department. There's, um, there's four of us that, that work together. Um, five of us actually with our boss, Tucker. And, um, you know, I was really impressed within within a couple days of of the decision that uh, the office was going to close and people were going to work at home. Um, they had me they had me on fly tying three days a week, and now I'm doing Facebook lives. I'm doing seven Facebook lives this week. Um, so we, you know, we really just we really just switched over to it very very quickly. Um, and you know, we had the, we had the resources. Luckily, um, you know, I, I'm set up here in, in my home where I can record podcasts. I have a little re- podcast recording studio. I have all my fly tying stuff set up and, and four computers, uh, <laughs> a couple, a few laptops and a, and a, a desktop. And, you know, I've got all the lights for, for shooting still photography for my book. So, um, you know, it, it wasn't a hard transition. In fact, I don't think I'm going to go back to the office. There you go. Um, any kind of surprises? I mean, it sounds like the transition was easy, but what surprised you the most with kind of going to this a hundred percent virtual, um, process? Oh my God, I'm busier than I ever was. I, I have, I have no time during the day. You know, I used to be able to fiddle around at the office and, you know, browse the web or I run out and fish on my lunch hour. And I, I don't have time to do that anymore. It's crazy. Um, but you know, we're the, we're the people who we want to stay in touch with our customers and, and, and keep them engaged and, and keep them happy. And, um, you know, we're the, we're the people that are going to do that. And the, the product developers are, are working very hard on, their new products remotely, which has got to be really difficult. It's got to be so tough to to work on product development where you can't sit across from somebody and play with samples and things like that. But they're they're cranking away at it. So it's um, you know it's an un- it's an unfortunate situation. It's like nothing I've ever seen in my lifetime, and I've seen a lot of crazy things. Um, but um, you know you have to adapt. You have to adapt quickly. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously it's very early on in this, but, you know, when we're on the other side of this, how do you think interaction among members of the angling community is going to change? I think we're going to continue to do a lot more of these live things. Honestly, people seem to love it. Uh, I think I think we're going to do a lot more of it. Um, it's fun. It's engaging. And, um, you know, it's 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 a way for us to personally interact 
with our customers. I mean, I've got a bunch of people that watch my live fly time three days a week and they've become, become buddies. They tease me and, you know, uh, I know who they are and where they live and they share tips with me. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great. It's, it's really, it's really great way to interact with, with your, with your customers. And it's interesting too, because I've watched a couple of your lifetime events and I think the information and the generosity that you have and what you share with people is, is really great too, because it's stuff that, you know, hard to read and kind of absorb. But, you know, when you talk about, I think you were tying the muddler minnow and you're like, you know, uh, don't get black tied deer hair because it's just the chemical bath kills it. And, you know, that's just a hard piece of information to get, but, you know, interacting that way, it's really interesting, uh, you know, what you share with everybody. Yeah. And, you know, those things are hard. I mean, I have to tie, I have to, I I sit down and tie two or three dozen of those patterns for two days before I do one of those live events, because when you're sitting down tying, you think of things that you wouldn't think of if you just sat down to tie it. You know, you do it over and over again. You think, ah, that, that's why that does that. And so, you know, I want, I want to give as much information to to people as I can. So, uh, you know, I, I crank out a lot of flies that don't look so good before I get them right. <laughs> and, uh, it's, uh, it's been eye opening. Plus my fly box is getting filled up. You know, I'm, I'm typically not very good at tying prior to the season because the season hasn't really started here in Vermont. It, we, it snowed last night, half an inch. Um, so things haven't really, things haven't really gotten going. Um, and I typically would not have my fly boxes filled, but I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> well, there you go. Absolutely. Cause I guess, you know, you got the whole show season thing and then you're out of time, time and the season starts. Um, I'm just a procrastinator, Marvin. It's, Marvin, it's not, it's not that I'm just, I just procrastinate. Fair enough. So, you know, kind of another COVID-19 question, you know, obviously the priority is to, you know, take care of yourself, your family and your fellow man, you know, what do you think? long-term on some of these conservation and access issues uh, that that fly anglers care about and Orvis is involved in? Do you think it's going to be harder to get people to kind of maintain focus on those in the long term? I don't, I don't know about focus, but I do, I do think that the economy is going to take a long time to rebound. And I think that's going to hurt that it's going to hurt some conservation causes. I don't, I, people seem to be just as engaged in conservation um, as as they were before this crisis, and so I think it's going to stay top of mind. But I'm worried that uh, the money to support these causes may be difficult. Uh, I know that Orvis is, is going to have to cut back on some of our conservation funding because our business has taken such a nosedive. Um, it's, um, it's, it's not going to be pretty. So, um, I think it's going to be tough. I think it's going to be very tough and we need to do everything we can to, to keep people engaged in this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it'll be interesting too, to see kind of how people reprioritize things in their life after this and see kind of, you know, hopefully they'll see a greater value in some of this stuff that we've been talking about. Well, yeah, I should be thinking of the positive side of it, and, it, and you, you just you just made a very good point that people hopefully will will p- 
put greater emphasis on those parts of our lives that bring us such joy and preserving them and protecting them. I hope so. And, you know, it's interesting. One of the things I, I learned by spending time with you in Virginia, you know, I, I knew about all of your fishing accomplishments, but I didn't know that you made your own gourmet chocolate. Um, <laughs> how, how long have you been a chocolatier? I'm not a chocolatier. Okay. A chocolatier is someone who makes bonbons and all that crap. Oh, okay. Fair I enough. A, I am a cho- I am a chocolate maker. So I make, I make bars and I make nibs and I don't, I don't put many inclusions or I don't do fancy stuff. I just make, um, chocolate. Got it. I think I've been doing it about seven or eight years now. Yeah. And by the way, um, I'll share this compliment. I, you met my youngest son, Jasper, and, uh, we actually had the last little bit of one of the chocolate bars you shared with us. And he's like, Tom's chocolate kicks ass. So there's a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think it's, I think it's, um, people, people have told me how oh, it's the best chocolate I ever made. And I think that, that people just, most people have not had good chocolate. That's, that's made with care from really good beans. Um, the commercial chocolate that you buy is made from, uh, commodity cocoa beans and, um, it's mostly over roasted and, there are there are hundreds of small commercial chocolate makers because I'm not a commercial. I don't sell. I've never sold a chocolate bar in my life. I give it away to friends. Um, there are hundreds of people that do this for a living, uh, but I but you know the, they cost eight ten dollars a bar, and most people aren't are prepared to spend that unless they know unless they know what they're missing. So. Um, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Yeah, absolutely. Was that the problem that you were trying to solve is you just couldn't get your hands on enough uh, good chocolate? Is that what made you want to uh, make your own? No, actually, uh, I started making it because my son uh, has a severe peanut allergy. And I, it's very tough to find chocolate that's not made in a facility that has peanuts because cross-contamination is a a serious issue. Um, there are there are a couple makers, um, Guitard in California, which makes really good chocolate, and Scharfenberger don't have any nuts in their facilities, but most of them do. And I thought, well, maybe it'd be fun to make it. And I hacked away, taking shortcuts, um, using cocoa powder, and uh, you know, just some it made some really awful chocolate. And then I found this website uh, called chocolate alchemy and it's run by a guy named John Nancy. And John is a guy who really started the small batch bean to bar craze. Cause he figured out how to make chocolate without hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of machinery in your kitchen. Um, probably 15 years ago. And, you know, he's the one who, figured out this process to do it in small batches. And now he sells the machines to make them. They're pretty simple kitchen machines and he sells really high quality, um, cocoa beans, really, really fine. What they call fine flavor beans that are a direct source from farmers, um, that where they, where they take a lot of care in processing the beans and raising the beans. So, um, 
it was it was it's kind of expensive initially. You have to buy about five hundred dollars worth of machines. Um, and my I was wasn't going to do it, and then my wife said, "Oh, I want you to do it. It's winter time, and it'll be something you know, like I need another hobby." Um, but I, I found that it was fascinating. It's you know, it's like making your own beer or wine or bread or whatever. Making things yourself from scratch is is really satisfying. And of course, everybody loves chocolate. There aren't very many people that don't like chocolate. Aaron Adams from Bonefish Tarpon Trust, a fishing buddy of mine, doesn't like chocolate. And there, but th- there's a few weirdos like Aaron out there. I hope I hope he's listening to this. Um, you know, most most people most people you know they really appreciate when you give them a chocolate bar that you made yourself. So it's very satisfying. And I love playing with. I love playing with the different beans. Um, every bean has a different flavor. And so it's a lot of fun to get a new bean and find out what it tastes like. Yeah, a- absolutely. Are you, um, are you a foodie in general or are you a chocolate lover, right? I, w- I would say both. Uh, my wife and I, I would consider us foodies. Um, she makes bread um, from flour that she grinds herself. Uh, from raw, you know, organic, uh, ancient grain flours and grinds, grinds the flour and she makes her own yogurt. And we eat mostly fresh local, uh, vegetables and meat. So yeah, I consider us sort of foodies. Very neat. And so you've got about $500 worth of machinery to get started and you get to pick these awesome, um, awesome chocolate beans. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of the process to to prepare your chocolate bars? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, first you, uh, the beans come to you from the source. They've already been fermented. It's a very important part of the process and dried. So you get these raw dried beans in a bag and you roast them. So typically today's Thursday, I roast my beans on Thursday night and then they have to sit overnight to cool. And then on Friday night, I crack the beans in a champion juicer. You, you just have to, re, they have a hard outside hull and peeling them by hand would be tedious. So I run them through this juicer that cracks them all, removes the husk uh, and the nib, which is the part you make the chocolate from the inside, the cotyledon separates. And then you're, you're, you're left with this big bowl of, of husk and nibs. And then I, um, Friday night, I also, um, run them through a, um, a process that separates the, it's called winnowing. It separates the uh, husk from the nib. So like a Rube Goldberg thing with PVC tubes and a five gallon bucket that, um, the husk goes into a, into the bucket and the nibs drop out of a spout. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's pretty crazy with a shop back attached to it. Looks like R2D2. <laughs> and uh and then uh that same night I will uh heat a little cocoa butter, just a little extra cocoa butter, and I'll put the nibs once they're separated in a thing called a melanger, which is a, a wet grinder with granite wheels that uh in a motor. And then they'll run that those and then I'll put the sugar in. Yeah, that's all I put in my in my chocolate is co- uh, organic cocoa beans and organic sugar, um, and then that'll run for a day and a half to two days, just 
constant running. I have, have them set up down in the laundry room. So it doesn't, um, it, I used to do it in the kitchen. It was really loud and my wife didn't like that so much. So I've been banished to the, to the basement for the grinding part and they just grind and, and just keep running and running and running. And then it gets really smooth. Those granite wheels eventually crush everything till you can't taste any roughness on your tongue. And then Sunday mornings or Sunday night or sometimes Monday morning, I uh, pour the chocolate out of the melangers and I temper the chocolate, which is a kind of a tricky process that is very temperature dependent that um, you have to form a certain type of crystal in the chocolate. You pour it in a mold and um, then you let it sit for an hour or so. Uh, put it in the refrigerator for 20 minutes to set to set those crystals. And then I pop them out of the mold, and um, for the rest of the week, I sit down at night and wrap them. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I know why you uh, you have a problem tying flies, right? <laughs> You're making I too know, much chocolate. The chocolate making has cut into both my writing time and my fly tying time. Don't. Well, hopefully, my publishers aren't listening to this. Um, so, so it, you know, it's a process, but it, it, it's enjoyable and it's working with your hands and it's pretty mindless. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fun thing to do. Very neat. How many bars do you think you make a year? Oh, I don't know. Um, I don't have any idea, but I typically, uh, on a weekend, I don't do it every weekend, but, uh, during the winter, it's almost every weekend. I'll make about, let's see, about 36 to 40 bars on a weekend. Yeah, sounds like you're probably making five or 600 bars of chocolate a year then. Probably, yeah, probably. I give a lot of chocolate away. No, you are, uh, you are like the candy man up at the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. I don't eat, I don't eat, uh, you know, my wife and son and I split one bar maybe every other night after dinner, um, split one bar three ways. So, um, you know, I don't eat a ton of chocolate, but I eat enough. I eat more than most people. <laughs> Fair enough. So out of that entire process, Tom, what's your, what's Tom's secret to making great chocolate bars? Oh, it's like, it's like the secret to tying good flies. Uh, lots of experimentation, lots of mistakes, lots of practice. It's, it's not that hard. <laughs> Got it. And, you know, you've obviously sampled a ton of different bean, uh, chocolate beans. What's your favorite type of chocolate? Oh, my favorite. Well, all my bars are about 72% cocoa. They're, they're it's pretty standard um, formula um, so that I can tell the difference between the beans because that's kind of fun. Um, but there's a bean called Zorzal that comes from the Dominican Republic. And I actually know the guy who's part owner of this operation, Dominican Republic. And not only are they the, the best, the best, they make the best chocolate. I think that I've made, um, three quarters of this cocoa plantation, Dominican Republic is set aside for a nature preserve. It's the wintering grounds of, uh, Bicknell's thrush. Um, which is a fairly rare thrush that um, summers in the mountains of Vermont and the, at the top of the higher higher mountains. 
and um, and it winters in um, Dominican Republic, and they've set they've set this uh, land aside for for uh, wintering grounds for the Bicknell's thrush. So it's a cool story, and it's a great bean, and really really neat operation. I ne- I've never seen it. I've never been to a cocoa bean operation. Um, I hope to someday. Uh, we'll have to talk to Dan and have him put together an Orvis travel trip where you can uh, go fish and uh, go see a chocolate plantation. Yeah, yeah. But if people are if people are interested in trying that Zorzal bean, there are a number of chocolate makers who use it. And if you just Google Zorzal, you'll probably get to their website. And then you can find they have a list of the people who use that bean. But it's they're really great beans. Well, cool. Well, I'll um I'll uh, put the link to those guys in the show notes, and then that'll make it a little bit easier for folks. Cool, and put put a link to Chocolate Alchemy in there too, if people are interested in making their own. Absolutely, and I have one last chocolate question for you. Is I want you to share, you know, who designed the artwork for your candy bar wrappers? My son, when he was he's fifteen now, when he was eight years old, he designed that, and I've never changed the label. It, it's a very funky label. <laughs> it's very cool. Why don't you describe it to folks? I'm going to try to take a picture of one and get it uh, in when I put the episode out. But it's great because it looks like a picture a really uh, fun-loving eight-year-old kid would draw. Yeah, it's a picture of a trout uh, grabbing a chocolate bar, hanging on a hook, hang, hang on a fish hook. And it's called Meadowy Muddler Chocolate. Um Muddler obviously is the muddler fly, and Meadowy is the name of the little uh, trout stream that I live on. Very cool, and kind of coming back, kind of as we're getting kind of to the cl- to the end of our time together, kind of coming back to fly fishing stuff. You know, obviously we're in the middle of COVID nineteen, but what do you think is the biggest challenge facing our sport going forward? Uh, the resource, the resource, um, the the. Oh, I wouldn't say overcrowding because people say things are crowded, but they're really not. People just want to all go to the same place. And, you know, there aren't that many fly fishers in the world. Um, it's, it's protecting the resource and protecting public lands. And particularly the threats to the, the uh, Clean Water Act, you know, the, the, the uh, protection of tributaries, which is supposed to be um, – kind of negated i think that that's what keeps me up at night no absolutely and it's it's interesting you say that about crowding because i've always found that if you're willing to walk about 200 yards it's amazing how much water you can have to yourself <laughs> yeah i have no i have no patience with people who say rivers are too crowded because they just they don't like to walk or they don't you know if you can't put a drift boat in a river they, they don't fish it and there's lots of lots of stuff around in this country yeah we need more pullouts tom right Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, you've made a a ton of great contributions to our sport. You know, what do you want your fly fishing legacy to be? Um, you know, I guess just having been a great teacher, having, having helped people learn how to fly fish and have fun with it. I think that would be all I would ask. 
very neat. And I know, you know, when we spoke probably, you know, in Virginia and probably saw each other again in Edison, you were working on a lot of cool things that I suspect might have slightly gotten pushed to the back burner. Uh, now that you're becoming even more of an internet star than you were before, you want to share, <laughs> some, <laughs> you want to share some of those, uh, those projects, uh, with our listeners. You know, this is the first time in maybe 30 years that I haven't had a, a book under contract or a magazine article hanging over my head. Um, I, but I have an idea. I have an idea for a couple more books. Um, if I ever get some time, I'm going to, going to start up again, but they're not ready for prime time yet. Got it. And are you working on any video projects? Well, I'm, I'm, um, yeah, I'm still, I'm still completing, uh, the Orvis guide to fly fishing season two, uh, which I'm, I'm still working on putting the clips in, in proper places in the scripts. Um, it, it's live now. It's on, it's on YouTube. The first, uh, well, by the time this comes out, the first three or four shows will be up there. Um, but there's still, there's still, uh, about 10 of them to go. So I'm still working on that. And I hope to, hope to do more. I hope to do more, um, video, video stuff. Um, cause I enjoy it. It's a great way. It's a great way to teach. It's a great way to get the point across. And I enjoy working with a film crew that I've worked with for, many years, um, the new fly fisher crew up in Ottawa. So I hope to, do, I hope to do more of that. Yeah. Yeah. Hope to do more, um, presentations at clubs and things like that as, as, uh, as I get older or when I grow up there, you when you grow up. Yeah. And the guys at the new fly fisher are great. And, um, I'll drop uh, links to, uh, to the second season in the show notes too. So it'll be an easy place for people to, uh, to find those episodes. Great. Thank you. Absolutely. And of course, you know, um, what's the best way for folks to follow the fishing adventures of Tom Rosenbauer? Um, well, I have an Instagram account and of course I'm doing all these live events through Orvis, um, or the, uh, the YouTube channel, the new fly fisher YouTube channel. That's probably, probably the, the best places. Got it. So Instagram is your social media flavor of choice? Uh, yeah, I don't do Facebook. I do Facebook Live, but I per, I don't look at my personal Facebook page. I don't I don't like Facebook <laughs> Person, personally. No, fair enough. Uh you're you're not alone. Um so Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um well listen, Tom, I appreciate you carving some time out for me today. I know you're crazy busy. Uh you you've got this meteoric digital media career that you're working on, and uh I appreciate you carving some time out for me today. Well, thank you, Marvin. It's it's always great to talk to you and and um and um I hope to see I hope to see you soon. Absolutely. I owe you a beer. Okay, you're on. And I owe you a chocolate bar. Fair enough. Take care, Tom. Okay, thanks. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review in the podcatcher of your choice. And again, a shout out to this episode's sponsor, our friends at Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Please visit btt.org and become a member or donate today. Stay safe, everybody. Tight lines. <laughs>